episode of the Women in Oxford's History podcast. I'm Bethany. And I'm Alice. And this month we'll be looking at the life of another woman who has contributed to Oxford's history. So this month we're joined by Dr Elizabeth Bajant, who is a reader in the history of geography at the University of Oxford. And she's here to talk to us about Nora McMunn, who was a geographer and suffrage campaigner. Hi Liz, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Maybe we could start um, by talking a little bit about Nora's early life. Could you tell us sort of about her family? Yeah, Nora uh, McMunn, she was born in 1875 into uh, a very establishment family, so strong influence of church and army. Her father was the principal medical officer at the Royal Hospital in Chelsea, so that's where you see the scarlet-coated Chelsea pensioners. And her mother came also from an army family, and her her father was chaplain to the Royal Hospital at the time, so that's presumably how they met, but uh, went on to be chaplain to the Queen, Queen Victoria. So very establishment circles, and the family lived at the hospital until 1896, when they moved down to St Leonard's, and Nora was within the home circle at that point. She was educated privately, and then she came up to Oxford to read history, and she was a member of what was called the Society of Home Students, which was what became St Anne's College later on. It was set up so that people could, uh, from within the Oxford community, could read for a degree, Uh, but she obviously was living away from home at the time, and so she she was part of that, that society and read modern history, sat her final examinations in 1903, but obviously at that time women couldn't matriculate matriculate at Oxford and that fact kept them from graduating. So although she uh, did her examinations, didn't do particularly well, we gather, but um, that um, uh, didn't hold her back. She, she then stayed on in Oxford to do the Diploma in Geography, The Diploma in Geography was the first qualification offered in geography at Oxford, and you didn't have to matriculate in order to study for a diploma, so it was in effect open to men and women equally. And some people did that diploma instead of a degree, and many people did it after a degree. It wasn't exclusively for uh, people who were going to go into teaching in schools, but a large proportion of the people who did the diploma did go on to do that. Do we know if she had an interest in geography beforehand, or was it this challenge of being able to progress in history because she couldn't graduate formally? Well, certainly there was no diploma in history, so that wouldn't have been a route open to her. But I suspect it was because she liked things like geopolitics and military strategy, and she certainly had a global view of the world from her army background. There was a lot of overseas service in her army, and her brother, in fact, was a very distinguished general in India. So I think it was probably the global outlook, and presumably all the pensioners at Chelsea had served in various parts of the world in imperial wars, so she may have picked up something there. I don't know, but certainly certainly a tremendous number of people from all sorts of disciplines came into the geography diploma, so she wasn't unusual in not having read geography as a first degree, as one might expect, because there was a very narrow range of degrees offered at the time, and therefore a di- something like a geography diploma was necessarily going to attract people from all the more broader disciplines. So that- kind of led her then into this academic career that she had. Could you talk a bit about the kind of work that she did and, and what she published on and, and the mm, impact she made? Yeah, the reason that she's significant perhaps in the history of geography is that she, in 1906, so really rather soon after she'd uh, taken her diploma, she was appointed 
demonstrator in uh, the School of Geography. And a demonstrator did all sorts of things, really. Um, helped in classes with map work and bibliographic work and so on. Um, but she didn't stay a demonstrator in that lowly post for very long. She progressed and she became a senior demonstrator, then assistant lecturer, and finally lecturer in regional geography in the school. So she would have been teaching men and women. And she also had at least one research student. So she was a, a full member of the, of the academic staff there. And that's um, highly unusual. As far as we know, she's only the second woman to be appointed to an academic post at Oxford and I believe the first woman was appointed in the education department and I think it's significant that those were slightly marginal to what most people at the time would have considered to be mainstream disciplines within the university. So those marginal disciplines offered space for the marginalised, i.e. women, to find a niche there both as students and, and on the academic staff. So she did really a normal teaching load. She, what she did wasn't gendered in any way. And even in terms of salary, she, she, she earned rather little when she started, principally £15 a year, I think, when she was, was demonstrated. But she, she rose by the time she, she was lectured. She was the second most highly paid member of staff in the School of Geography. So we don't see discrimination in that sense. However, men were promoted over her um, in, in a trend that one sees in, in many departments so outsiders coming in and having success whereas the long-serving Nora carries slogging on it, it was a vicious circle at the time men coming in were better qualified because they could matriculate and get degrees whereas the women couldn't and also they could uh, become fellows of important professional societies so for geographers that was the Royal Geographical Society which was an early learned society uh, founded in in London from in the 1830s and um, it was close to women and even after it was open to women McMum didn't become a fellow although I'm sure she could have done instead she chose to uh, belong to the Institute of British Geographers which was a professional society for academic geographers which was open to women from the start but that didn't carry with it the same sort of cachet it wasn't a fellowship it was just a, a membership organization so Nora, Nora McMahon was left without a fellowship for a long time without a degree and other men who were at least on paper better qualified than her were promoted over her. What sort of things did she publish on? Well, she published within the accepted genre of geography at the time, which was very largely regional geography, so very detailed descriptions of places from both their physical geography and their human geography. But she also carried on publishing in history, in the authoritative Victoria County history, for example, and in the Oxford Survey of Empire, where she um, writes with uh, an authority in military matters and strategic matters, which is really quite remarkable and uh, really bears testimony to her family background rather than anything she learnt at Oxford. But certainly she didn't at all fall into the sort of caricature of writing on soft feminine subjects. She was very, very brisk about manoeuvres in the Mediterranean, for example. And uh, she, she wrote quite surprisingly in some of her, her geography publications, they're rather dryly titled, for example, Guide to Geographical Books and Appliances, 
which doesn't sound as if it's going to be terribly exciting, but uh, within that she manages to sneak in a reference to Olive Schreiler's uh, feminist story of an African farm. I wonder really what her male co-authors uh, would have thought about that had they had they probed, because I think it may be something um, maybe unlikely that they would have wanted to to lend their names to that recommendation. But I like that recommendation because it's a little glimpse in print, the only one I can find really, that um, leads us on to the other side of her life, which was, as you mentioned in your introduction, the fact that she was a suffrage campaigner. So it's it's quite surprising in some respects to find that kind of a feminist perspective in what is otherwise, in terms of geography, you might perceive as quite a male discipline. Yeah, I think the story of geography at Oxford has been told very much as if it were a male discipline. So, for example, one of the facts known about the School of Geography is that um, surveying was taught um, as a way of educating people for for the imperial services. So very much uh, sort of uh, the story is told of male skills, as it were, being being taught in in Oxford, and it's known particularly for the first head of the school um, and the first person to have an appointment in geography anywhere in in the United Kingdom, um, who was Horford Mackinder. He was a geographer. He was also interested in military strategy, uh, but he was um, a vocal anti-suffragist. He went on to be an MP and spoke um, extensively in Parliament against suffrage. Uh, Luckily, he he left the School of Geography by the time that uh, McMahon was appointed. Um, I don't know whether whether she would have uh, secured her position had had he still been in post. That's something that we've come across quite a few times, actually, that often, especially in these very early fields of research, women Mm -hmm. getting their positions is kind of reliant on their male contemporaries approving or not approving of their political views and of their research. I think that's quite an interesting point that we might imagine that if he'd been around a year later, she might have struggled to get her foot in the door in the same way. Yes, I don't know to what extent her suffrage views were known to her male colleagues. And of course, historians don't like to speculate about what might have happened had things been otherwise. Uh, But um, it it was certainly... fortunate for her that it, it, it things worked out as they did. And we know that at least one of her um, other colleagues, O.S.G. Crawford, uh, declared himself to be in favour of, of women's suffrage. And perhaps that was just as well as by that time he was her junior. So she was actually quite um, radical in her views about suffrage. Could you talk a bit about the campaigning she got involved in and how, how far she, she took her activism? Mm. She has quite a long history, in fact, of campaigning. She began campaigning down at St Leonard's where her family lived and her, her mother was a campaigner. She uh, is known, for example, to have um, chaired meetings of the local suffrage society and handed out leaflets. And her sister, too, was a campaigner. She, the two sisters, marched uh, in favour of women's suffrage when they were down at St Leonard's. And there's a very nice story of their having marched and then uh, being chased by the policeman. And they had to hide in a, in, in a darkened house for many hours while the policeman plodded around outside uh, trying to work out where they were. So she was used to, to sort of... Um, dealing with difficult situations um, when when she was campaigning. But in Oxford, she's unusual in that she was a member of the Women's Social and Political Union's Tax Resistance League. Now, they were a group of... The WSPU is is the militant uh, branch of the uh, the suffrage movement, and their Tax Resistance League 
had as a, a campaigning weapon the refusal to pay taxes. Their slogan was the tried and tested, uh, no taxation without representation. So they argued that until they uh, were granted the vote, it was not reasonable to ask them to pay taxes. Now, ta it, taxes uh, at that time, income tax was um, for single women, they were liable for their own tax. Uh, for married women, it was their husbands who were liable. Mum was unmarried, so she was liable for her own income tax. What I haven't been able to find out is whether she actually earned enough to be liable for tax in the first place. So we don't really know whether her resistance was notional or whether she actually refused to pay the tax. Um, certainly her, her earnings for, uh, from the School of Geography weren't princely, but um, who knows, she may have had other sources sources of income. But I think she's she's interesting in that respect. And again, perhaps we can see her it's her family background um, telling the fact that she is used to regarding things as a campaign and um, militant uh, campaigning was, was something that she was prepared to undertake. Do we know if she faced any ramifications for her political beliefs in terms of her career or no, I mean, I don't know to what extent it, her, her suffrage activities were known. Um, and it might have been something that she was prepared to talk about within her women's uh, college circle, but simply didn't come up within a, um, a, a departmental context. Certainly we know that, I mean, many of her colleagues were um, campaigners for educational reform for women, uh, for example, so that she would have been sharing college life with the with the like-minded, but um, there's there's no sign that there was that it, uh, impinged on her work at the School of Geography. We certainly know that there were other independent-minded women in the School of Geography. So, for example, a long-serving member of staff there was A.J. Herbertson, but his wife Fanny Herbertson was a particularly well-educated and outspoken woman who in effect acted as an unpaid member of staff um, at the School of Geography. So there were, there were like-minded people who had been within the school. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the Society of Home Students, what later became St Anne's. Her links there and her networks there seem to have mm. been quite important to her at various points in her life. Yes, I, it was one of those incipient uh, societies which became a college. And I think that there's some evidence that, that students and uh, the women dons, because they were small in number and because the women dons had, in effect, a sort of quasi-familial relationship to the students, they did form very close bonds. We do know, uh, interestingly, that um, at some point in, in her retirement, she shared a country house with Ivy Williams, who was the first women barrister in England. Ivy Williams studied and then taught at the Society of Home Students exactly as Nora McMahon had done. So the two of them shared a country house together. And I think that's indicative of, of the really close bonds that there were uh, in those early women's colleges. When McMahon retires, it's interesting that there are the normal tributes that you'd expect to anyone who retires, and those are recorded in the college magazine. But it's fairly clear that um, McMahon is regarded with real fondness by her students. These aren't formulaic expressions of thanks and so on. They're really, really very warm and very heartfelt. And um, I think that's indicative of the, of the support that many women found within those all-women societies at Oxford. 
So what happened to the geography department after she left? Well, it reverted to being an all-male establishment um, until some years later, four years later, in fact, um, another woman was appointed, Mary Marshall. But she, I think, remained a demonstrator for a long time and eventually became a lecturer. The, The department was dominated by men on the staff front. It always had a very large number of women undergraduates, um, the degree in geography was, was begun in, in 1932, and from the start there were a disproportionately high number of um, female undergraduates. And partly that was for all the wrong reasons, i.e. that they were prevented from studying various subjects if they didn't have, for example, Greek, and many girls didn't learn Greek at school, um, but they could do geography for which there was no Greek requirement. So um, so there are partly negative reasons for, for, for choosing geography, partly positive that the subject was um, interesting, and we have lots of descriptions of early geographers in the field with men and women working alongside each other. We have a very nice early description of the very first summer school, for example, in geography, Um, where a rather nervous Scottish male student is reporting his experience. And it's quite clear that there are some fairly commanding women who are on this geography summer school. So uh, there was, um, at the the student level, I would say that there was no difference in, in, in many respects in the way men and women were treated. And both men and women went on to do school teaching uh, in geography in large numbers. So their sort of career trajectories were fairly similar. But at the level of staff, at the level of the academic staff, women were very, very few and far between. So as I said, after McMunn retires, there are four years when it's all men, then one woman is appointed, and then we have to wait really quite a long time before the second woman, Marjorie Sweeting, joins her. So McMunn retires in 1935. Do we know how she spent the last few years of her life? Well, she retired to what she described as a cottage, which is a rather magnificent house um, in in Hampshire. And um, we don't know anything more about her at that point. Um, And I think that's really typical of the difficulties of keeping track of people on their retirement because once they cease to be part of institutions, it's hard to find record of them. Um, And on the whole, it's harder to track women than men, because women tend to belong to fewer institutions. So we don't. I I live in hope that I may yet find out something, but at the moment we don't know any more more of her life. So what do you think her legacy is now? How was it that you came across her? Well, I came across her because um, I edit a serial for the International Geographical Union, and every year we bring out a volume of um, memoirs of past geographers. You have to be dead to qualify to be in there. And for the next issue of that, I'm preparing an article with several other female colleagues from the uh, present School of Geography about women, staff and students in the early School of Geography. And that's been a very nice project. It's very collaborative. We have everybody from the present uh, head of school down to um, a retired librarian who's currently also a part-time DPhil student and uh, various other people in between. And we're busy uh, collectively excavating the pasts of various women in the school. 
And interestingly, probably the most distinguished is a woman called Marjorie Sweeting, who was my tutor when I came up as an undergraduate. She was um, a physical geographer and a fellow of St. Hugh's. And um, it's interesting that um, she has been memorialised less, I think, than her male contemporaries. Um, she hasn't been ignored, that wouldn't be um, accurate to say that, but um, it, it's important in this particular international serial to get her get her memorialised. But we also have excavated the history of lots of other minor women who've done interesting things with their geographical training. Uh, for example, some women worked on the Admiralty Handbooks, which was a Second World War project based in Oxford, um, importantly at the School of Geography, where um, geographers and other specialists in different parts of the world wrote handbooks for use by naval personnel in active service with details of what they might expect when they pitched up in different parts of the world. And there were, there were various woman, women within the school who had distinguished careers, um, and, it, and it's been good collectively to do that. Perhaps um, they had smaller histories than would justify a memoir as a single uh, person, but collectively it's been good to see what their contribution is. And it's pointed out some uh, pointed up to us some, some rather interesting facts about the present day school of geography, for example. Uh, we have a whole parallel history here of women in the school of geography, not the heroic story that's uh, generally told about big name figures like uh, Sir Wilfred McKinder and A.J. Herbertson. And it's interesting that as one goes around the present day school of geography, one can visit the, the Herbertson room, the McKinder room. Um, there is a Marjorie Sweeting room, which uh, she would be most amused to find is the place where people uh, eat cake and drink coffee. She'd thoroughly have approved of that, but nonetheless it's interesting that it's a kind of domestic space, is, is the only space in the department which is named after a woman, whereas the, the, the more academic spaces are, are named after men. So I think it would be splendid if a result of this would be that um, we demoted one of the men and had a McMunn room instead. Thank you so much, Liz, for joining us. That was really interesting. A pleasure. Thank you for listening to Women in Oxford's History. Join us again next month when we'll explore the life of another woman in Oxford's past.